Hello. Hello. This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And today we've got an excellent episode. Yeah, we always do. We've got Rick Morrow, who's an intern architect and also a former building envelope remediation consultant, which yeah. is uh, pretty exciting for us because for sure. obviously that's needed in the lower mainland yeah. where we've had a ton of issues with leaky condos. Yeah, and Rick is, uh, he's a great source. It's almost like you can point them in the direction, whatever topic you want to know something about and say go and we're, he yeah and we're gonna have him actually back on on a future episode talking about design and architectural design and and the usefulness of an architect and uh we're really excited for that as for well sure he's yeah really super knowledgeable guy but first yeah uh, but first maybe yeah let's, let's talk about the new regulations that were just released so this is a provincial regulation yeah, and um some of you have heard our our previous episode on shadow flipping right um and this is uh, to do with that. Well, yeah. So this is an amendment to Part Six to the Six of the Real Estate Services Regulation here in British Columbia, right. and it's almost a direct result of Kathy Tomlinson's uh, articles in the Globe and Mail. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah. And uh, and what it does is it takes on shadow flipping, and it does it uh, basically. I can read out the two. Uh, clauses that have to be added into any contract to purchase and sale. Which have now become part of the boilerplate of of the standard MLS contract as well. So in all, in most real estate transactions in in BC now, uh, they will have this uh, this writing, yeah. this, this whereas, terminology. Whereas you used to be able to assign contracts, now they have this. This clause, okay. A, this contract must not be assigned without the written consent of the seller. And B, the seller is entitled to any profit resulting from an assignment of the contract by the buyer or any subsequent assignee. So obviously this is trying to tackle that issue of uh, somebody selling their home and over the course of completion it trades hands three, four times and they find out that you know there's a million dollars uh, in profit that they left on the table uh, right. unbeknownst to them, right? This whole idea of shadow flipping. So just to go through those again, so number one, so you now you cannot assign the contract without the written consent from the seller. Exactly. So that the original seller is going to know and has to give their okay with any uh, assignment. To, to sell any assignment yeah. or reassign. So there's no assignment. chance that there will be any flipping in the shadows. In the shadows. Okay, so 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 assignments have to be flipped in in, in, in broad daylight. Broad yeah, daylight. Exactly. Okay. So now in the second part, the second part, the seller is entitled to any profit resulting from an assignment. Of course, this means that the original seller, if they give give their okay and say they sell their home for one million dollars and it's flipped for one point five, they get that five hundred thousand dollars profit on top. So that five hundred thousand goes back to the original owner. That is correct, yes. Okay, so some of the challenges with this. So we've kind of talked about it a little bit. We haven't spent a lot of time with it. Yeah, it just um, came out. It, it, it was just released, but we did want to kind of put it, put it out there because it is new regulation, and we'd love to actually hear what, what everybody out there thinks about for this sure, new regulation. For sure. Because, I mean, here's the thing, and we kind of talked about this when we, 
when we had the show with Mike Hofer, where we talked about shadow flipping, an assignment is, a, is basically a neutral tool, right? That we were kind of making the argument that it's been kind of demonized as this, um, this, this. Well, even the wording around it, right? Shadow flipping. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been. It's been mischaracterized, I would say, as as maybe something that it's not. I mean, assignments in a lot of ways have really helped buyers, especially in falling markets, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so now we're in a situation where certain individuals have have used it dishonestly, and we're not saying that we really a lot of the stories that are coming out, especially the ones with realtors involved and certain brokerages involved, obviously we're not condoning the actions of a few um, but what we are getting at is that um, more so, I don't think it necessarily has to do with the assignment, right? Exactly. Well, the way I'd like to see it is it's not the the assignment. It is the people utilizing assignments. And if there are realtors uh, that, are, that are being underhanded and duplicitous and right. using assignments to profit or to... Um, trick people into certain transactions the real estate board or whoever should be going after those realtors not necessarily the assignment clause sure so maybe this means uh, stiffer council regulations or or board regulations and obviously the biggest critique is is how little the fines are actually for misconduct yeah. in our industry so exactly. cleaning up kind of the individuals in the industry perhaps and not really messing with uh, tools and devices that actually work in our marketplace. Yeah, well, here's, here's an example, Adam, of, of a way that this could negatively impact a potential buyer. Sure. Right? Here's one case. You uh, purchase a home for $1 million. You have a deposit uh, that you put down for $50,000, and the completion's in three months. Well, in between that, those three months, uh, the market is stable, Right. You know, the house is still worth what you paid for it, um, and you lose your job. Somebody gets sick, uh, which happens your, all the time. Your house that you uh, had caught on fire. Your situation changes drastically, and you can't complete on that property. Now, say you want to assign it, you go back to the seller and say, "Not well." Now you have to go back to the seller and say, "I need written permission for you to assign that contract." Your in, entire livelihood <laughs> is tied up in that seller giving you the okay and what happens if they don't well a you can't assign it and you can't complete on the property so you lose your fifty thousand dollar deposit and potential damages yeah and potentially they sue you for 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 more yeah so i mean that that seems to me as a, a real negative uh consequence and and one that uh uh, really is weighted towards sellers and uh, doesn't really consider potential buyers in this market. So it sounds to me like what this has kind of done is, is in a lot of ways, it's it's put a lot more risk on the buyer. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, here's another example. And here's more of a thought experiment uh, with this assignment clause. Now, the same buyer purchases a house for a million dollars. It goes up to, say, one5 uh, and they assign the property or have to assign the property and, and sell it for 1.5. The original seller will have to give the okay, and then the original seller benefits uh, to They'll the tune of $500,000. $500, so right. after the property is sold, the original seller has no risk with the house right? until it's not their house anymore. They've sold it, but they still... Uh, can profit off their house. So let me ask you something. Yes. So what if the market now shifts the other direction and now that house that was worth a million dollars is worth 500,000 and the the bottom of the market falls out, yeah. not saying that's that's likely, but say it does. This is because now the buyer has assumed all the risk. 
Now, what happens to that? Does, does the, the seller, seller yeah, does the seller is the seller on the hook? Uh, no, no. So the seller uh, has no risk in the situation, and there's only upside. But the buyer takes on the risk, but can't actually see any reward for taking on that risk. And and this goes to a, a larger point that this legislation came out of an article, and the article was produced in an environment in which the market has been rising very quickly. Right, a very certain context in which. Uh, well, this, this behavior has been a, a byproduct of a very hot market. Exactly. And we've been saying that since day one. Right? And I guess the conclusion here is this uh, legislation, the changes here, are uh, very short-sighted in my uh, short-sighted, view. Short-sighted, but also they tend to penalize buyers. And right now, uh, you know, sellers, they're in a great position. They get to dictate the dates. They get to, they've all, almost everybody in the lower mainland has made money on their, pro- on their That's property. Exactly it. Sure. There's buyers out there speculating. There's also a lot of buyers that aren't, that are just tr- honestly trying to get into the market, trying <laughs> to buy a trouble. home. Exactly. And now they're more exposed than they were before. Yeah. The risk is, is weighted even heavier towards buyers, towards buyers who don't have much of a leg up in this market, to be honest anyways. Yeah, it's kind of a it's a weird out of all the things that have happened for this to be the uh, the, the, the result end, the end result <laughs> is kind of a is a yeah it's unfortunate but uh, it is what it is and again at, and what you know we're talking to it on a very preliminary basis it was just announced yeah we it, thought we'd talk I think about what it. what we'll see is when this market starts to shift to a more balanced market or potentially at some point even even a, a, a falling market I think then we're going to actually see the repercussions of this kind of leg- legislation until then I guess it's um, you know maybe some people will feel will feel protected and yeah. and you know what? I guess that to some extent, there's there's probably some benefits to this, but uh, I just I just hate to see what the repercussions are going to be when when things shift. What is that saying? Buyer beware. Buyer beware. Okay, so moving on. So uh, just a little bit to to talk about rain screening, maybe yeah, to for get people it. that haven't uh, been exposed to this notion of rain screening or to the leaky condo crisis in the Lower Mainland. Uh, just a couple things. So obviously, we're very familiar with that part of the. Part of the reason to have a real estate agent when you're looking for condos is that is that this is one of the biggest. There's there's tons of buildings still out there that that require rain screening. Leaky condos can be very expensive, and we're not talking about uh, you know a couple thousand dollars. We've seen several buildings where they've needed full remediation, which often scaffolding goes up. It's a year and a half, two years under the tarps, uh, and we're talking seventy, eighty, millions and millions of dollars, right? Yeah, and I was going to say, well, seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars to per unit in terms of uh, remediation costs. So you have to live through that cost. You have to. You have to pay for that cost. If you try and sell during that period, your building's flagged as with CMHC where p- lenders aren't going to lend on your building, so you can't... So buyers have to be cash buyers, ex- yeah, and, and it's And that's when the vultures come out, right? So the, it's really, really risky business to get into the situation. And and uh, like Adam said, there's still some buildings out there, and, and that's why you want to work with a good realtor. So just a couple things before we get to our interview with Rick Morrow. Um, leaky condo crisis, the, the code change was in the early 80s, which allowed for certain types of buildings to be constructed. Uh, Rick gets into that in a bit more detail, but basically EFIS stucco and, and a lot of the cladding systems, yeah. um, more like that California-style stucco, the smooth stucco. Um, a, lot of low, a lot of low-rise and mid-rise and even high-rise buildings in Vancouver were, were built um, and and they were built using materials that just weren't great for our climate. Yeah, not so, too much rain here. 
Too much rain, exactly. So um, basically in the lower mainland, a few a few numbers, uh, estimated $4 billion in damages occurred, over, including over 900 buildings and 31,000 individual housing units. This was in the early 80s starting, and it went all the way up until uh, about, well, 1999 was when the rain screening regulation came yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, usually we say as a sort of broad numbers to be safe, you want to look, you know, you're safe before 1982 and after 1999, or 1999 and after. In around that range. Yeah, but and there's of course still... there's spillover on either side. Spillover on either side, for sure. I mean, and everybody, I think if you've been in the lower mainland long enough, or you talk to enough people about real estate, everybody knows uh, somebody who uh, was uh, unlucky enough to live in a in a, a leaky condo. And uh, Rick gets into some of that too with some of these the stories of there's some there's good jobs and there's bad jobs out there. But uh, Rick having to go into buildings on uh, on a daily basis where people were uh, you know losing their shirt and angry and uh, and hostile. It's it's uh, and ready to shoot the messenger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or that guy who's trying to help. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. Well, maybe without further ado, here's our interview with Rick Morrow. I know you guys will enjoy it. Okay, so we're here with Rick Morrow. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Good, guys. How are you? Good, good. Good, good thanks. So uh, why don't you start by maybe telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm an intern architect, uh, which means I have an architectural degree. I graduated from UBC School of Architecture in 1992. And uh, after that, I worked in, I guess you'd call traditional architectural firms for about 15 years, um, primarily in custom high-end residential um, single family stuff. Uh, we did a little bit of multifamily. I've done some commercial work as well. And, um, after 15 years of doing that, I decided that, um, I was interested in maybe trying something different. Uh, I had a friend who was running a building envelope, uh, remediation company. And, uh, uh, over the years prior to that, I had helped him on and off with minor things. And, uh, when things got more technical or he needed some architectural or construction advice, I would uh, advise him. And, um, so he had been talking to me for years about coming to work for him or with him. And, um, so I decided to try it. So, uh, I went to work for this small, uh, building envelope remediation company for about four years and, um, got to see lots of interesting things. Great. Great. So that's what we were hoping to talk to you about today, about rain screening and um, envelope rehabilitation. So what was your role in the company? And also, also what years? So you were, you were involved for four years? So, so I did that for about four years. Yeah. So this would have been in 2007 uh, till about 2011. I worked for this uh, remediation company. Yeah. So you're, you were primarily dealing with buildings then built between early 80s to about the late 90s? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And even some newer than that, you'd be surprised, and we can wow. certainly talk about that as well. But it, um, it seemed like when I, when I finished school in 92, the building industry was, was quite quiet because there'd been, uh, you know, Expo had been a big boom, the 80s had been a big boom in construction, and then the early 90s, things were quite dead. So a lot of my uh, classmates, when we finished school, had a hard time finding jobs in the architectural industry. Um, but I came out of school and, uh, in the nineties at that point, there was starting to be a buzz about the issues with condos in Vancouver. And I actually went and took some courses that were, um, 
offered only to engineers, professional engineers and architects. And it was uh, the building envelope professional courses through our association, um, which was also quite interesting. But I decided not to pursue that specifically, but I thought it would be good education for anybody in the architecture, design, construction business. So I went took those courses at that time. So, so maybe we can back up a bit and maybe just define what what exactly was the leaky condo crisis. Well, not only that, what what was the leaky condo crisis, but also even building envelope. The you know, yeah, a lot of people these terms are not uh, familiar. Sure, right. So. Um, in the construction industry, I guess you'd call this all, it's related to building science. And, and the building envelope has to do with the skin of your building. So that would be your exterior cladding systems. It would be windows, doors, flashings, roofing. All that is part of the building envelope. And uh, I guess when, when I f- was going through school, there was some discussion about detailing and um, some of these issues. And, and, you know, you always were thinking about uh, good building practices and principles. Um, and then I think what happened was, you know, in the eighties, there was a big boom. And anytime there's a boom in construction, things are going very quickly. Uh, the quality of workmanship can be questionable because there's such a rush. You've got people that maybe you might see a different kind of level of qualifications in the workers. Um, sometimes there's new materials that are being introduced to the industry, all, all sorts of things. And, and all the time building science is evolving. So, uh, you know, that's when there was a lot of buildings were done and, and we'll call them faced sealed stucco systems. And I'll explain that in a second. Um, and so I think what happens then is you have this uh, period of time and then the problems start to become apparent. And that's what we saw in the 90s and forward was a lot of these buildings that were built very quickly in the 80s and, and even later. Uh, some of the issues with some of them had to do with code. Some of them had to do with workmanship. And then some of them had to do with maintenance. And, and these things still are relevant uh, now. But a lot of the things that had to do with code and workmanship are now being addressed by other means. So, for example, um, the, the code didn't dictate some of the things that now it does. Where in Vancouver, we, Vancouver is unique too because we have the Vancouver Building Bylaw, which is separate from the building code. And actually it has some rules and regulations in it that are more stringent. And this is, maybe I'll take you back one step as well. So the... The National Building Code was designed years ago, uh, you know, by scientists and building technologists. And, and a lot of that information from the, from the National Building Code came from things they were doing in Saskatchewan or wherever, you know, they're doing right. the R2000 home and all this stuff. And, and the thing is, like, obviously Canada is a series of many different climates. So you design a house for northern Saskatchewan where it goes to minus 40 or whatever, that's not the same as west coast of Vancouver where, yeah, for yeah. example, in north Vancouver, we get 95 inches of rain in a year compared right. to, you know, San Diego gets 10 inches. So mm-hmm. so you have to really identify the uniqueness of each climate and have things in your code to uh, address those problems. Right? So was that the issue that they were relying on a national code? Yeah, I think that, that was a contributing factor, right? So, so my opinion would be that there was probably three factors that, the building code maybe didn't address all the specific issues that were particular to the West Coast of Vancouver, you know, our climate. Uh, workmanship maybe was uh, not always uh, as good as it could be. And and detailing was maybe not as robust as it could be for some of these issues. And then the third thing would be uh, maintenance wasn't always taken care of. So people, people forget when they live in condos that... Um, you know, it's still like a home and they have to do maintenance. And right. it's like going to your dentist, right? You have to go in for a checkup every once in a while and you might have to get a cavity filled. Or And if you ignore that, you're going to be in for some expensive dental work down the road, right? Yeah. 
So that's, I think, part of the, the part of the issues we saw with the leaky condo crisis. A cavity or a fourteen million dollar rain screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that hurts. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we should back up and just talk about. Uh, I think we're getting to it, but what actually a leaky condo is? Then. Sure. So, so the ones that that you see the the big full remediations and and there's there's you know obviously everything's in a spectrum, but the ones that were really bad were typically face sealed stucco. So so this is I'll explain face seal versus rain screen. Face sealed stucco, typically the buildings were, you know, concrete structure. You'd have steel stud framing and you'd have uh, exterior um, drywall on the outside of the building. And then you'd have uh, lath and stucco right right on top. So in the in the old days, in traditional housing, they did uh, face sealed stucco too. You see it on the old houses in Point Grey or in Shaughnessy or whatever, slop dash, rock dash. And, and they didn't have a problem with that because... One, there was hardly any insulation in the walls. Uh, and then two, so the heat would go through and dry it all out, right? So, so that worked fine. But when we got into these new buildings, we're making them airtight, we're adding extra insulation, and they don't dry out anymore. So, so now you've got this uh, long-term wetting because of the face-sealed stucco. Water's got nowhere to go, and things start to rot. And it never dries out because it rains here for eight months of the year. Right. So, and, then, and then once the rot starts, it just uh snowballs right and and it's and it's it can be drastic and that's some of the projects you hear about in the horror stories where people it's thousands and tens of thousands of dollars per unit to fix the problem right 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 so so then one of the big things that they determined and this is part of the building science is that a rain screen uh, could address a lot of these issues so what a rain screen is and in the city of vancouver they mandate a certain dimension of space you need is before I talked about that assembly, how you had the steel stud and the exterior drywall and then stucco right on top. So now we introduce an airspace in there. So you use strapping and it can be metal strapping, it can be wood strapping, etc. And then you put the lath on top of that and the stucco. So now there's a gap, a void in there. So, so that void enables the wall to dry out and it prevents the water from uh, going right through and absorbing into the structure of your building and rotting the building, right? So it does, it, it drains better and it allows the building to breathe, I guess. Yeah, both. Yeah. So, so typically in a rain screen building, you'll see um, flashings at the top of, of each wall and at the bottom of each wall uh, on, the, on the side of the building. And, and so this is a constant challenge. You know, architects... They always want to make things look beautiful, and and you you're you're trying to hide some of these functional aspects. So that's part of the real art of architecture now is to build a nice rain screen building that has robust details, proper rain screen, all these flashings, but have it not look all chopped up. Because mm-hmm. and you'll see some of that in the early rain screen remediations is the buildings, and and I'll criticize engineers a little bit, but whatever. It's when it's done by just an engineer, mm-hmm. you'll see all these flashings, and sometimes it can be a little heavy-handed, right? Maybe not so attractive. But but now uh, we've we've gotten quite good at it, and there's ways that you can do it that that are discreet and still does the job and looks good as well, right? So just to be clear, then the rain screening technology or the rain screen technology has seemed to have kind of prevented the ongoing yeah so so that's that's addressed a big part of it and then the other thing like the city of vancouver also mandate uh, mandates that on uh, i think all new construction now you have to have a building envelope uh, professional on the job so not only do we have the benefit of some rules in the code where it mandates you have to have uh, a rain screen cavity um, and there's other regulations probably that address the detailing but but a big thing is now you have to have a professional on the job that's looking at your details 
not only looking at them at the design level, but uh, overseeing it in, during the construction to make sure that it's executed that properly too. Is, yeah, is there. yeah, yeah. So that's so that's one part is the wall assembly, but there's a ton of other stuff too that has to do with um, you know the window systems, and and that's all improved a lot. The flashings and all that, and and a big part of it back to the maintenance thing was um, a lot of these systems were designed. And, and especially if you get a challenging building with, with the intricate details, it's hard to make all that stuff come together in a waterproof way, right? So, so you end up relying on things like fla- uh, flashings and caulking. And caulking is wicked because, you know, it, it has a limited lifespan. It lasts five years or seven years, and then it needs to be replaced. So you get on these high-rise towers, and people don't realize that they got to replace all the caulking, or they neglect it, or they don't want to spend the money. And all of a sudden, you've got a problem. Water's getting into your building. It's 20 stories up in the air. It's not easy to get to. You can't look at it to inspect it. And then the scaffolding goes up. And then the scaffolding goes up in the nets. And <laughs> and then you're looking through blue screen the, for uh, The tarps of shame. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So just going back to um, going back to that, can you describe what a, a typical building with a face sealed system would look like or something to look for maybe if you were... If you're uh, a buyer a right buyer. now and you're a little worried about this. Yeah. And, and, and the ones that, were, that we saw... The, I mean, you've seen them all in the city. So you've seen towers with the stucco and the scaffolding and the nets on them, and you've seen low-rise stuff. The the low-rise condominiums that that had the real problems, they'd be the wood frame buildings, three or four stories high. Those ones really suffered often because they're wood frame, and the wood was really susceptible to the rot once it got in. Right. So it would be a bigger job for a wood frame building as opposed to a concrete building, typically. Uh, typically, probably that's a, that's a fair statement, right? Like okay. the, the concrete buildings suffered less, but still had issues because the steel stud will rust and rot too, right? right. So it's a, the the repair sequence and the repair procedures are a little different, but um, but in general, I would say yeah, the, the concrete buildings fared a little bit better than than the wood frame low rise stuff, right? And uh, and you'd recognize it if you drive around town. There's less and less of it, and it's interesting too. We we were talking before about how you don't hear as much about leaky condos anymore. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's it, not. It, people are concerned about it, but you don't run into. Yeah, and 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 I don't remember all the statistics or the numbers, but at, at the time when I uh, had finished school and it was starting to become a prevalent issue, they were talking about the millions and even billions of dollars it was going to cost to renovate or remediate all these condos that were going to need right. to work. And, you know, 15, 20 years later now, and, and it's been a constant uh, pr- process, I guess, but uh, maybe a lot of those really bad uh, ones from that time frame have been addressed. And um, uh, it seems to be less of an issue. The, the construction um, techniques are better. The methods are better. The, the concern is more prevalent. So people are doing a better job. It's, uh, it seems like it's less of an issue in general. So apart from the exterior of the building, if there's a leaking issue on a building, what 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 are the identifying the characteristics? Symptoms that, the yeah. symptoms you would start to see as a homeowner, and it's not just the the envelope too. You'd see it a lot. It can be a leaky roof. Uh, we did a lot of work at the company that I was at on deck membranes, and and those things. Everything in the building has a limited lifespan, right? Even the exterior stucco needs regular maintenance at a certain point. Uh, needs to be either coated or there's crack uh, control stuff that you have to do. But um, things you would see as a homeowner. You start to see mold, uh, you know, typically below your windows. And that's often, too, if the insulation wasn't uh, installed properly. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a spot where the, the warm, moist air from the inside of your house is hitting the cold steel studs underneath the window. And you get the condensation. And then you start to get the black mold. And then you mm-hmm. start to get the soft drywall. So that's on the inside. You'd see stuff like that. Um, 
you'd see it around uh, lots of times around openings, right? Doors and windows, um, other penetrations through the envelope, like for fireplace openings uh, or dryer vents or all that kind of stuff. You could see things like this. And it was one of the challenges of that business is uh, often it's a bit of a trial and error. You find a problem and water doesn't necessarily just come straight through. It'll come through in one spot and leak across the roof and come in across the room. And so there was a lot of detective work and investigation sometimes to find the source of the problems, right? Well, that actually takes me to my next question. So if you would have been contacted by a building that was starting to see kind of the symptoms of this issue, what would be your guys' process? Well, this, so, so I, like, I like analogies, and I'll tell you the this, this story that I used to tell people. And, and uh, I always um, likened it to the, the stages of grief. So the first, the first <laughs> things that, that people would say was denial, right? It's like, no, we don't have that's a product. Not our, that's, no, not not, that's not us. <laughs> so then eventually after facing that for a certain amount of time, then it would turn to anger. Like, who's responsible for this? And, and can we make them pay? And can we sue them? Can we go after the original builder or the inspectors or whatever? Yeah. So that would be anger. And then eventually, if they heard enough, they'd get to acceptance. And it would be like, okay, you know, it's not going away. We do have a problem. We have to fix it. So the, for us, if you approached them and they were still in the first stages, it was usually good to just, you know, yeah. go away. But if they were getting close to acceptance, then then we could actually help. And uh, I have to say that was probably one of the reasons why I ended up um, leaving that business after four years was it, it was it was really interesting and it was a good challenge and I liked working with the people, but it's kind of a bad news business, right? Yeah, no kidding. You, you're there. It's money people didn't want to spend. Uh, it's usually more than they expected to spend and you don't have that much to show for it. It's not like you got a new addition to your house that you're fixing something that was supposed to be there in the first place. So, so there was a lot of hostility and sometimes we'd have people literally did not want us to be there. And the other thing is you're right in people's face because you're in their units. You're having to move their furniture. You're having to pick their clothes up off the chairs so you can do the work. It's really personal work. Like you're right on top of them. It's very challenging, right? Yeah, so no one's excited to see you. They're not excited to see us. And they're not that happy even when we leave. (laughs) (laughs) So often it would be something would prompt us to come there. It would be either initiated by a problem that the building knew they were having. So that would be sometimes the property manager or the strata council. The strata council or the property manager would approach us and say they had a problem. We might come do an investigation uh, or oftentimes uh, they might have a consulting engineer, a building envelope engineer, do an investigation and then... So there's there was kind of two streams. One would be the engineer-directed work, and the other would be uh, work where we would investigate and propose a solution. And, and we did quite a bit of both. And, and because of my background in architecture, uh, I had a pretty good understanding of uh, construction, detailing, and assemblies, and how buildings were put together. And I was able to uh, analyze a lot of this for the customers um, without having to use an engineer. So they, that was a benefit. Um, but then when projects got very large, then typical, typically they would have a building envelope uh, engineer come in, do more detailed testing and analysis, and then put together a scope of work. And they would tender that out to a number of companies and we'd all bid on it uh, or negotiate. And then um, if we were successful, we'd get the job and we'd uh, try and go fix the problem, right? So do you have any horror stories? Like, it sounds like it was pretty much a, a full horror it, story. It's all horror stories, <laughs> if you ask any of the people. But, but yeah, there was a lot of stories where it was, you know, uh, horror for the clients, uh, horror for us. So, so I would say from a customer perspective, I remember there's a few horror stories, but there was, you know, a small building uh, over close to VGH, 
and we were doing a full remediation, exterior recladding, uh, upgrading the, the look of the building too, which was quite interesting. Um, but this one poor couple at the back end uh, of the building, the rot went in and we thought it was just limited to their balcony. And then we realized that it had carried right through the floor into their unit, um, whole living room, whole kitchen. And they had a young baby and it was super stressful. We ended up, they had to move out. They had to go to an apartment or whatever. Yeah. The, the wife went to live with the parents and, and it's months, right? And this, this was the big challenge. And the real hard uh, part about it is that you not only would be there the, the defined scope of work that the engineer set for you, but there's the unknown. So, so typically in a building envelope remediation, there'd be the fixed scope and then there'd be some kind of contingency allowance for all this unknown stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you don't know until you start taking the building apart. So you come in, you demo all the stucco off, you pull it off and you see how bad is the structure. So then you, then you start taking the plywood off and how bad's the plywood. And then you start taking the studs apart and how bad's the studs. And mm-hmm. if, and is the insulation rotten? And then like this case, the rot just went right back into their unit. We ended up pulling all the floor out of the whole unit, redoing the, the structure for the floor, having to redo the flooring, repaint the whole unit. Wow. You know, yeah. It's, it's painful, especially if you're not expecting it and you have to, you know, and it sounds like they were out. probably first time home buyers. It's going to say they, often, <laughs> this is the thing, right? Yeah. Often. Right. And, and some of it's hard to predict. It's hard to see. I mean, if you're not an expert or you're not Right. Uh, looking for certain signs or sometimes it's even if you are looking you can't see it it's hidden problems right sure and i mean a market like this where it's a very hot market we're seeing buildings that that do have some major challenges people are willing to overlook that just to just yeah, to get to into get the in. market right? yeah. yeah just a quick just to give people a sense because we get this question a lot so somebody who's thinking about buying in a building that hasn't been rain screened that does have the ephus stucco exterior um, on average, can you give people a sense of maybe how long these, this type of a project might take and also the cost associated with it? And then, and in a second to that, um, a, a building that hasn't been rain screened yet, that's not showing any visible signs. Yeah. Um, would you ever buy into a building like that? That would be sort of the second follow up. Well, I, I think, so there's, there's a number of things. So as far as would you buy into a building that, that hasn't been remediated, that is a face sealed stucco system, for example, um, maybe, and, and and it depends, right? So this is where we saw a real spectrum of buildings and a spectrum of strata councils and property managers and and all the rest. So, for example, there would be some buildings where the people didn't want to spend any money, uh, didn't do proper maintenance, uh, you know, would wait until the very um, severe problems uh, manifested, and then they'd finally take care of it. So, so that was one end of the spectrum. So that would be a case where, you know, you don't want to be in there because they, they haven't been keeping up with things. And, and you guys do this all the time, I'm sure. You check strata minutes, you look at the history of the buildings, right. you look at that, and that stuff has to be disclosed, right? So that's one thing where you can do to protect yourself. If you're just looking at the building, you can tell, is the building well-maintained? And I have to qualify that a little bit, I guess, because sometimes you have a a well-meaning, ambitious building manager who's running around uh, putting a coat of paint and caulking on stuff and hiding bigger yeah. problems. And and sometimes you can tell with that where you can see there's layers and layers of something being fixed in one spot. And it's like, okay, that kind of looks odd. You know, too much caulking gooped on something or the, the, the kind of misshapen cracks in the stucco. So some of that, you know, there's some warning signs. Um, you can tell if a building's been 
had an assessment because the engineers come and they they drill holes and they cut little holes and you'll see these little square patches or these little round patches on the building and it's like okay that's interesting you know what's yeah. going on there and it, it might be a good thing if the results were all negative and there's no problem but it could be the signs that something's coming too right um so so would i ever buy one uh, maybe like if if it's been well maintained and you've got a proactive council and they're doing the proper work and, and that's another thing i should mention is that i think uh, a few years ago and you guys might know already that um i think it was mandated that you have to do building envelope maintenance plans now for new condo do, developments yeah. so that was a big thing because that was not a requirement before mm-hmm. right. and the company i was working for we were promoting a service where we would do that work for uh strata councils and property managers and and that became quite popular and to me made sense so we'd you know when we talked about how long do these building elements last and, and what are the costs so different components of the building last a different amount of time but but uh for example uh, membranes on balconies and that you know five to seven years depending on what it is like you can have a torch down roof membrane that's like the roofing that you see on a on a building a normal roof you can have that and then sometimes they'll put the concrete pavers over top torch down is quite durable you, you can get 25 30 years out of that right uh, often other times you'll see the traffic coating which is the gray uh, looks like paint almost. You'll see they'll broadcast sand in it, so it's got kind of that gritty feel to it. That 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 product uh, probably lasts right five seven years, and you might have to recoat it. The liquid products are good because you can touch it up and just recoat. Um, but it, the process is a bit more challenging. It's got heavy odor. The prep is very particular. You need really qualified guys to put it on to do a good job. Um, you know, and then so there's other products, uh, vinyl uh, decking you'll see sometimes on the on the low-rise condos, right? The sheet vinyl, not as attractive, um, hard to patch. So those ones, we wouldn't even bother patching that. we just cut the decks right up, take the plywood off and redo them because it was just like too much trouble to fix, right? right? So, so there's stuff like that. Um, you know, w- doors and windows. Um, we did a lot of window remediation prod- products or projects, sorry, where we'd replace the whole um, window system in the whole building. It's, um, you know, that's, that's a fairly involved process, but, but windows, I think nowadays you might get, um, 10, 15 years on the frames as the warranty and maybe 25 years on the, on the glazing unit. And you'll see that a lot of times in the buildings too. That's not a building envelope failure, but it's a part of your building that will need to be replaced. You'll, you'll see it. The windows start to fog up. It means the mm-hmm. seals right. are going, you guys probably deal with Bro, that. Yeah, quite common, that. Right. So stuff like that, and it's and and now any building that uh, that you're going to consider should have that building uh, envelope maintenance plan. You can look, you can see what's scheduled, when it's scheduled. Make sure they've got the proper contingency in their strata. Uh, what about the process of actually rehabilitating the envelope? Yeah. Because I've seen certain projects, obviously this is dependent on the size of the building yep. and, and how much damage has been caused by water ingress, but it's not uncommon to see a place under tarps for at least a year if not two years right uh yeah 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 that that's often the case so and it and it really was tied to the severity of the damage and the uh, scope of work right so sometimes uh, and and whether it was a full remediation or targeted so that's stuff you'll hear about as well if you're dealing with um, strata councils building envelope consultants some firms some building envelope firms tend to really push for the full remediation they don't like doing the targeted repairs but but the reality is that some strata councils and some uh, owners can't afford to do the whole deal and right. so i mean the, the engineers i think the logic is well 
we're not going to take any chances. We're just going to do everything. But when you get in there and you start doing the work, there are parts of the building that may be okay, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on the exposure, the orientation. In Vancouver, it's always the east side and the that, that had the most damage, right? You, or you get northeast. It doesn't dry out, doesn't get the sun, gets wet, gets moldy, you know. So, so we would see the heaviest damage on the northeast kind of exposures. Uh, south side, not so bad, right? Although south side, sometimes you see different kind of damage because the south side's baking in the sun. All the caulkings are dried out. The water's getting in through the... So it's, you know, it, it depends. That's a hard question to answer. But yeah. but I think you're right. Like you, uh, and, and also that depends on the type of building. So if you get a low-rise building, uh, wood frame, you kind of work your way around the building. So each particular part of the building may not be covered for as much time. But the whole process is still, you know, the square footage is that much. It's going to take you that long to work your way around. Whereas a tower, because it, the access is so expensive... They just scaffold the whole thing, go up and do it. Although sometimes they'll do a one face at a time too. They call them drops, right? Right. And and we did a lot of work like that. We did work off of uh, swing stages too, which that would be a good horror story that I could tell you about my, what experience that I had would be we were working on a job out in uh, in Port Coquitlam. And this is the other challenge is, is you have a problem in the building and it's on the 20th floor and you got a leaky window. Well, how do you, how do you deal with it? Who's going to go have a look? So you know yours truly gets the the job of we're going to go check this out so so we set up a swing stage which if anybody doesn't know what that is that's the that's the 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 system where you got the bench across and the two cables and you got two guys one at each end it's like uh the window cleaners it's like the window cleaners going up yeah the other the other thing is the bosun chairs and you see the guys swinging down on that but i didn't do that i'm not doing that but but i went up on the swing stage so you wear you wear a harness you got a, one safety rope attached to yourself, and then you've got a cable that runs through the, the end of the swing stage attached to a motor. So there's two of us. So, so envision this. I'm going up with this old, grizzled, veteran, uh, glazer guy. He's been in the industry for 30 years, 40 years, big, burly biker guy. And uh, so, you, so you ride up, and, and the great thing is you've got a motor at each end. So he has to run his motor at the same time I'm running my motor. And inevitably, one motor is always faster than the other one. So gradually, the one side of the swing stage starts going up higher than the other side. And so then you have to stop the one motor and let the other one catch up. But every time you stop it, it's like crank, 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 and the whole thing shakes and jerks. And and now you're 20 feet or 20 stories up in the air. And it's a little breezy, so things are moving around. And uh, out there exposed, it it is not enjoyable. So so we get to the top, and, uh, and we're looking at this window detail. And it's as high as the swing stage can go because we're right at the top of the building. You've got two beams that you've put out to hang the whole thing from. But the, the thing we need to look at is a little bit higher. So, so the guy that's with me, he climbs up on the railing of the swing stage to have a look at this detail. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? Get back in this thing because if you fall off, I have no way to get back down. <laughs> so, so that was a horror story and I'm glad I didn't have to do that oh, every day. But it, but it was interesting. So, and, and this was a challenge. And, and it, as an architecture, as an architectural graduate architect or whatever, um, it was interesting to me because you start to realize the implications of your design and the detailing and how does somebody take care of it afterwards? One, how do you get to it? Because sometimes on these buildings, you see these complex shapes and interesting forms. It's like, wow, that's a great building. Right. But how the hell do you get up there afterwards yeah. if you got to do a repair? So that's one thing, access, which working for the building envelope remediation company, I certainly gained an appreciation for how do you get to something and then two is how do you do the work after so you get up there and some guy's got to have a caulking gun or tools and he's got to get at this weird detail in this you know remote corner and fix it and then somebody's got to check his work so it's you know there's there's lots of challenges 
It sounds like you should just buy in a low-rise concrete building <laughs> with no architectural merit. <laughs> all, yeah, I was going to say all challenges above my pay grade for sure. Yeah, yeah sounds, no kidding. Uh, Matt's, jeez, uh, you're scared to ride the elevator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The 20th floor makes me nervous in, in the hallway. So. Uh, um, the, only, the only other thing I was, I was going to ask is we have a lot of clients that that are are willing to take on the cost of a rain screen. Um, but we often tell them that it's, it's more so about living through the work, which you've obviously identified yes. as very invasive. Um, and not only that, but, um, so, so, cause the other thing when you're talking about the factoring, the cost, a lot of people would always ask that, do, do I buy into one? What's it going to cost? So, so the costs, and I, and I used to have the numbers more fresh in my head, but we used to know on a square footage basis, you 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 could project because you knew on a low rise it was going to cost uh, eighty bucks a square foot of sure. face that we were going to do. If the windows were in, it was going to cost an extra this. If the yeah. you know, but but those numbers now have come inflation. down a lot. No, oh. I think that the I think it's the the business has gotten more competitive. When, when I when I first left the architectural firm uh, and went to work for the building envelope uh, remediation company. Um, it was still kind of on the rise. So, so there wasn't that many companies doing that specialized work. Typically when we were bidding, uh, on the, uh, engineer specified projects, there was only a handful and you recognize the names. If you drive around town and see the right. signs there, there wasn't that many, half mm-hmm. a dozen, right. Uh, prominent names. And then now it seems there's a lot more players. And I think the, the margins have probably tightened up. There's not the proliferation of that work. So it was, you know, it was, it was challenging work. It wasn't. It wasn't um, good news work, but it was profitable because it was difficult and and the 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 circumstances and the situations that you were dealing with were not easy. So so you had to be compensated for that, right? It's an interesting business because you would imagine that there's there's still several buildings that need to be remediated. But what happens? I guess the maintenance program is is where the that's longevity of, of that business yeah. continues on. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and I th- and I think that's the shocking thing too that that uh, there were still some newer buildings with poor detailing or issues or failures where there was still major remediation going on even after you know what we're talking about this period of the 80s and right. early 90s where the, but even newer buildings were having big problems right is it true what they say that typically if there is going to be a failure of an of an envelope it usually happens early on in its life is that well within within the first 5 years i would think you, you it wouldn't be surprising if you see it in that 5 to 7 year period cuz that's when some of these um uh, lifespan of some of these products starts to end, like the caulkings and stuff, right? That's that's right. kind of their duration, five mm-hmm. to seven years. So, so if it's relying on that, which is not the best detailing, uh, then you'd see those failures, right? Right. Well, I'm just assuming, based on the idea of the the two five ten warranty, where the yeah. you know, five years on the envelope. So yeah, but but I think the other thing is the the unpredictable thing is the maintenance work. So if you've got a proactive council, uh, a good um, property manager and a, and a good maintenance program, and you're addressing all these things on a regular basis, you, you know, you, you might address some of these problems or prevent some of these big issues. Uh, however, if you're not doing that stuff, then you could see a problem anytime, you know, maybe the building's great for 15 years and you get a new council in that doesn't want to spend any money on maintenance yeah. and all of a sudden you got a problem, right? So burying your head in the sand is not, is the, not, not a good not solution the, at all. No, no, right. go and to the, go to the dentist. And that's yeah. how you, and the strata documents are how you see if yeah. the strata council has been yeah. going to the dentist. So it's your dental record. Yeah. yeah exactly. I, I did, I did hear uh, anecdotally, um, several building envelope consultants that we used to work with, the engineers that specified the work, they would talk about, um, 
as far as the cost goes, that most of the time the cost for the remediation, they they realized that increase in equity and value in the units when the work was done. Yeah. So I mean, people are are horrified by what it's going to cost them, but in the end, usually they saw the same bump. That's in, very in, true. In it's amazing if see. you if you can say that your building's been rain screened, how suddenly yeah, the oh, market sure. opens up. That's yeah. for sure. And and there was uh, anecdotal stories about a few players out there that were buying the buildings just prior to rain screen remediation for that exact reason that they were well, profiting yeah. on that too. There's right? a lot of people that do that. Will, will and buy target units. Will yeah. buy part of the reason because lenders won't lend on the building when it's been identified that you're going to do the work, right? Until right. you have the certificate of completion. So investors and people that were kind of savvy and well, and had and deeper maybe pockets. A bit in deeper pockets would, would cash buy somebody in distress yes. and then they would renovate the unit during the period that it was being remediated or put a tenant in there and then basically sell it once they had the certificate of completion and a brand new renovated unit. So you have a lot to sell, right? Right. You're obviously dependent right. on the market. Yeah, not surprising at all. And yeah. So a lot of people were playing that angle. And, for and sure. they didn't have to suffer through the workers walking around through their underwear the whole time. No, no. Yeah. Tenants at a reduced rate. Yeah. But you know, the, so it's this... $2,000 instead of $2,400. <laughs> oh, the, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing, right? It was, it was really depressing to have yeah. to go do this work and some of these people that couldn't afford to pay for it. Yeah. And, and, and it was not uncommon for the stratas to have to foreclose on owners in in the building because they weren't paying their fees or they paying their share of the yeah. assessment so people were losing their units over this stuff and, and one more fun horror story too where we'd be at some buildings and the people it, it was it was a, a a confrontational adversarial thing where we're there to fix their building and they'd be calling the tow trucks and getting our vehicles towed out of their parking lot because they didn't like it <laughs> yeah. you know that we're, and it's, it's like we're supposed to we're, yeah. we're here to fix the problem yeah, and you're yeah. getting our cars towed right it was it was yeah sometimes it was outright hostile well, maybe we'll leave it there. Sure. Thank yeah. you so much, yeah, Rick, for coming on. My that pleasure. was amazing. Super and, uh, informative. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. So there you have it, folks. Our talk with Rick Morrow. Rick's an awesome guy. He's yeah. he's great. You know the thing about Rick is he's got a, he's got a really um, he's got a, a, a broad wealth of knowledge, but knowledge that a lot of people don't have. And really, I mean, he he can speak pretty eloquently and at length about a lot of topics. So uh, he's he's a great guest, and uh, like I said, or like we said before, we'll have him back. He's fantastic, super talented musician too, by the way, and a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, uh, also we wanted to say thanks a lot those who, who liked our Facebook page. Um, please go and like our Facebook page and yeah. continue the conversation there. We're just kind of get, getting it up We're and running. We're just ramping and, it up, uh, but uh, it's, it's great to see people uh, starting to get involved, even if it's just one click. Yeah, for sure. And uh, also, um, if you can continue rating our, our podcast, it's great. We're trying to get... Uh, trying to get as many ratings as we can. If, if you like our podcast, the biggest compliment you can do is probably uh, to go and rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate that, and we read them all. Yeah, um, or, you know, get in touch, tell us yourself. But. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, just a reminder, we are real estate agents. We can help you with buying and selling. And, Matt, people, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, they can call me at 778-847-2854 or email me at matt at scalinarealestate.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at scalinarealestate.com. We also got that nonpartisan line. 
info at scalinarealestate.com. Well, guys, hopefully you enjoyed that, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Take care. Faces for Radio. Subscribe today.